Hey everybody, welcome to the Asking for a Parent podcast, listeners' questions episode. It's me, Dr. Coleman Doctor, and it's a real pleasure to get to chat to you again. I just want to say thank you to everyone. The response from the Louise McSharry episode was absolutely fantastic, and I really want to just start by saying thank you to Louise for her honesty and insights. It truly was a remarkable story that she shared with us around overcoming adversity and resilience and It seems like a lot of people got an awful lot out of that episode. So a huge thank you to Louise for giving her time, her insights and her honesty in that account. I also just want to say to people, you know, thank you so much for all the positive feedback and continuing to listen, download and sharing it. It's been a real pleasure uh, to do this. And, you know, season two is ending up being a little bit longer than we'd hoped because just because the response by everyone has been so positive. So thank you for that. And we'll continue to provide some more episodes over the next coming weeks as we struggle through lockdown three. But as we've heard, you know, there's vaccines, there's schools opening, there is some hope on the horizon. And I hope these green shoots of recovery or return are making people feel good about things, being able to keep in the four to seven, being able to hold on to some optimism and hope. Uh, and uh, this week's episode is a day late because our Wednesday fell on St. Patrick's Day yesterday. So we've decided to release it on Thursday instead and let you engage in your virtual St. Patrick's activities. So well, we hope you had a fun and safe day yesterday. And so without further ado, I'll let you listen to this week's episode with Alison Kaspersky of the Listener's Questions episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. Enjoy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Listener Questions episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's season two, episode 10, and it's a great pleasure to introduce you to my guest on the Listener's Questions episode this week. My guest this week is someone who works with me in UCD. Her name is Alison Kaspersky, and she's a parent, and she is someone who is connected, works very closely with Adam, our producer, uh, and is very kindly offered her time to help us out with the listeners' questions this morning. You'll know from Alison's accent, she's not local to Dublin. She's from the USA, and I'll introduce her to her now. So, Alison, how are you? Great, Coleman. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How is it all going? Just for listeners, we're in lockdown three. So, my daughter is back. Yeah. So, your daughter is what age, and where, where is she at in school? My daughter is four, and she is back into preschool or crash essentially so she'll be going off to um junior infants is the word <laughs> uh in september so we're happy to have her back um in the routine yeah. and how has the last year been is has there been lots of disruptions in terms of her attendance in crash or in childcare or how um, for you well it's it's been kind of funny i think she has enjoyed having mom and dad at home and we've tried to keep a structure to some extent, as far as our work schedules, you know, we would take a shift, like I would work in the morning or afternoon. Uh, so would my husband, and then she would be with one of us during the day. And then, yeah, so we tried to keep somewhat of a schedule with her, but she was actually, I was pleasantly surprised. She was happy to go back and happy to walk into class. No when tears. did she get back? Was it in the last couple of weeks? Yeah. So this was her first week back. So I'm... <laughs> I don't know what next week's going to be like, but uh, this week it was great. And in terms of the social piece of that, she's probably, uh, she's an only child. So yes. there wouldn't have been uh, too much contact with other children. Did she have a nervousness about going back into the social group or was she excited about it? 
She was excited about it. So what we did, we didn't kind of do a big major buildup of when we found out they were going back. We started to talk about going back to school only within the three or four days before she was going to start. So we just, you know, casually started bringing it up. Because again, you know, when we'd see people in the neighborhood, they'd be like, oh, you're going back, you're going back. So it really wasn't necessary for myself or my husband to constantly remind her, you're going back, you're going back. So we just got into the details of the day. Two days before I said, okay, so this is what's going to happen. And then we gave her more information, you know, we're going to drop you off at this time and talked about what you might be doing that day. And then mommy was going to pick you up at this time and just kept it, just fed her little bits of information. We didn't really um, bombard her with too much stuff. So and I think that's the advice that I would oftentimes give. And we've had a lot of questions around this in the last recent weeks because we've had the junior infants to second class children going back. We've the fourth class plus going back next week. And of course, childcare and creche and play school Montessori was restarting as well. So I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about acknowledging the return without over laboring it. So it's not about building it up to this big event or this big thing, but actually trying to, um, you know, obviously give some structure to how it's going to be, but uh, again, not making it into something that would increase the child's anxiety. Right. But there was, I have to say, though, of course, uh, the night before we did have a kind of an acting out. She she got a little emotional, but I was almost expecting it. So I just let it ride, you know, let let her have her moment. And it, it actually was a great release for her, I think. Got all the tears out, got got all the anxiety, you know, a few more stories that night, you know, a few more cuddles in bed. But actually, yeah, I'm I'm really proud of her. But I think also she's just that much older as well. I can't stress to people that how much that that helps just those few months older you know she's four now so it, it makes and, a difference and in terms of we've had this conversation before but we're starting to become a little bit more reasonable and you can start to engage a little bit more than the yes the, the terrible trees where there's a <laughs> kind of a, a a complete unreasonableness about it but there is a massive difference in that three to four gap isn't there I, I really, I found that it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I, I feel like I can, I can speak to her and she, she hears what I'm saying and she's, she's now, I think, taking pieces from what I'm telling her and applying them, you know, cause before it's just, you're just shouting rules and things at them almost, you know, here's this, try this, do this. And now I think she's taking bits of that and applying it in her own way, you know? So. And we had, we had Louise McSharry on the last episode and she spoke a lot about how her children, similar age, uh, over the lockdown had gone from unreasonable three to much more reasonable four and uh, had noticed that even without the kind of structures of the regularity and predictability of everyday life, the, the maturation still happened and, and yeah. was kind of uh, relieved by that. So you're in a position then of beginning junior infants or low babies, as they used to be called <laughs> in the past, what how's that been what's the preparation for that is that a, a busy time or has that been something that's caused you a lot of thought or well I think I've really I've I've kind of been uh toggling back to two groups you know the friends and you know the children who are who are my daughter's age and talking to their parents and a lot of people are saying well you know the lockdown and they've, they've missed out on so much I think I'm going to hold them back until until the next year and I was thinking about that and kind of, okay, right. But I really put a lot of trust in her teacher and I really pressed her as opposed to some of my friends. I really want to say like, is she ready? What do you think? Be on, you know, 
I was the annoying mom at the gate, you know, I was saying, let's chat, let's, let's do this. What do you think? What do you think? And I take a lot of reassurance from her. I mean, she's with my daughter during the day. She sees how she interacts at school. You know, I, I think she's ready. And, and it was nice to kind of have uh, that reinforcement from, from her teacher saying, we think she's ready. We think she's ready. So. I think there's a big question for parents. And I think, mm-hmm. especially this year, where there has been the disrup- yeah. disruptions in the thing, like, has there been, we were constantly talking about the possibility of developmental delay for children who haven't right. had the access to structure, et cetera. Right. But I think you're absolutely right. Someone who's observing the child in the schooling group, social learning scenario is right. best positioned to be able to say, yes, they are ready. Or, and, and there's no such thing as ready. We only realize how ready they are in October you know I mean? right. when they've started. So it's impossible to, to put that prediction on it. But I think gathering up the information and views of the different people who are involved in the child's life and putting that together and the child themselves, do they have a sense that they are ready to go in or, or next? And oftentimes what you would notice is that the child kind of outgrows the childcare environment or they're kind of finding it a little bit boring or they're, and that's a good sign, it's a sign that they're ready, but the best people to see that would be the people who are in that institution or in that organization who'd be able to, to say that to right. you. So. Again, it's not a foolproof method, but Mm-mm. it certainly seems to be the best way around it. You choosing schools and, and uh, you know, locating schools. How are you doing with all that? Is that all? Yeah, this whole process has been, again, because, you know, being a non-national, it's, it's, it's all trying to navigate. It's very difficult. I mean, it's, it's difficult for anyone, but I'm just, you know, really finding it difficult to kind of, you know, how do we get in? What do we do? There's waiting lists. There's this. When will we know? There's a chance you'll know maybe when the school year started. And then kind of location. Do I put her in a school near me, near home? Because my partner and I work on either ends of the city. So it's kind of, <laughs> she could be anywhere. <laughs> so yeah, for now, I'm leaning toward where she is now and continuing on there. Uh, it's it's a different environment than what I'd be used to, but um, but again, she's she's thriving in it. So for me to just take her out because I think maybe this school's more to what I'm used to, or uh, yeah, we're still. Yeah, I think oftentimes <laughs> I, I find this really interesting because I think when we're picking schools, we're looking at good schools mm-hmm. versus bad schools, and looking at reputation, and then you're right. looking at convenience, and geography, and who mm-hmm. was it convenient to where we are and what we need and I would always say there's no just thing as a good and bad school right right? because there's only a good and bad year so you can have this best school in the world this high reputation but that fourth class group are just toxic right Right. Um, or you can have this school that maybe hasn't got the greatest of reputation but that third class are really good culture they mind each other and there's this so there's a it's a lottery from that point of view in terms of the interesting one about convenience about do we place the school near where we live or where we work or again I would say an office the way it's not that you have an awful lot of options but you pick the school to suit the child so Mm -hmm. if you have a very sporty child who's not academic then you don't go to the academic school just because it's near you know it's trying to find the right fit in that sense but it's like buying a house and someone has told me years ago you buy the house that you'll need in 10 years time rather than buying the house that you want right now. And so the idea that 
your daughter's going to be in primary school for eight years. Uh, so is the likelihood, is it more likely that you might change a job in eight years or move house in eight years? Statistics would say probably change job from that point of view. So if, you're, if, if the location is something where you see in the long term, then maybe the school location close to where you live is a better option. Whereas, again, if you work long hours and, you know, if, because you will have to anticipate that you're going to get this call at 11 o'clock saying your daughter has a sniffy nose or a temperature or is that yeah. spewing and you need to come in now and get her. And in the absence of childcare, there has to be a practicality of, well, I can't be across the other side of the city or I can't be two hours away or whatever the case may be to be able to do that. But if you're just t- picking it on child, the well-being of the child, mm-hmm. I would say it's the long-term plan. What's the, permanency is key. So if she yeah. goes into this school and she loves it, you don't want to be in a position of having to move her. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. I don't know whether that helps the decision-making process, <laughs> but um, it uh, fit take, pick the school to fit the child. Uh, exactly. And I think that uh, it's been hard, um, you know, again, because you're, she would have friends in the neighborhood and they're trying to go to one school or some are trying to go to another. And I think a lot of friends are kind of, you know, they're asking each other, oh, well, maybe I'll try to put my child with your child. You know, they really were trying to keep the friends together. But I, I just feel that I, I'm not really, really doing that. I'm taking to, you know, what, what are they saying about their schools and what are, what are their opinions and what they want to do. But for me, I'm just really looking at her and, and where she's safe and where she's comfortable and what she she's enjoying doing and where she likes to be. Yes, there's different friends at home and then different friends at school and there's different things. But um, I just think, yeah, I'm really going to try to listen to her and see what, where she feels comfortable. Um, and and I, I think it's always the best guide, you know, and again, especially I think when it comes to secondary school, you have a bit off before you need to think about that. But the amount of fallout that I've witnessed over the years of children who wanted to go to one school and parents mm-hmm. are insisting on them going to another. Maybe the parent went there themselves, or, but they separate them from their social group and make them go to the school that they don't want to go. It tends to not work out well. There's a, yeah. a kind of a hidden resentment or they're going there under a cloud of you know, bitterness or whatever it might be. Um, so including the voice of the child in those choices, although might not seem like a big deal at from sixth class to first year, when you're thinking about the, the next six years that follow, uh, I would certainly be integrating their opinions into the choice yes. uh, because it will have an impact on their happiness. So, yeah. Alison, we've gotten a few questions in. Yeah. What's the first one? Okay, so, of course, there's a lot of praise for you. You know, great podcast, well done. <laughs> so we'll have to include that. So here we go. Uh, I have a question about my daughter. She's been great until recently. About six weeks ago, she had a few nights where she couldn't sleep. I think this was triggered by a COVID scare. Her younger brother had a high temperature. She met me in the middle of the night, leaving his room, uh, having checked on him. And although I assured her he was fine a few minutes later, uh, she started to complain of a sick tummy. So looks like there's been some difficulty. We had two or three more nights of difficult settling, feeling as if her breathing was wrong, using the bathroom. She almost seems worried about not being able to fall asleep. Since then, she's had zero to one nights a week with the same again, but this week we had two and I'm predicting the same thing tonight. Uh, She's looking for guidance with this. She's been listening to an audio book at night, which has helped. And last night I lay with her and the book 
and surprised, I'm surprised that she fell asleep after five minutes, but then woke again and couldn't settle. Uh, so she came into their bed. So tools to empower her to deal with this. Um, she's worrying about developing sleep problems later on. Okay, so the, the COVID scare issue is common. Uh, and again, I think from the point of view of children who are have a kind of a, a, a leniency towards anxiety are going to be hypervigilant around those things. And they, they tend to be kind of catastrophizers and sensationalizers around anxiety. So when she saw her brother being unwell, we don't know where her thoughts went probably into the catastrophic, we're all going to get COVID and things like that. And then she became sick her, herself. What I'd say is what's very common in children of that age is two things. One is psychosomatic pain, which is a feeling that my tummy is sore. And it's almost that you convince yourself that it is. And so the pain in her tummy is real, but it's just its origins are stress and anxiety, uh, not anything anatomical in terms right. of a bug or anything like that. So dismissing the pain won't work or saying, you know, but acknowledging the pain, but saying that the, the, the way in which we fix the pain in your tummy is to be able to be more relaxed. So that's, it's not about taking Calpol for it to be better like we would do when you have a sore throat. This is about trying to breathe and trying to relax and try to have nice thoughts. That's what's going to ease the pain in your tummy. Then again, the idea that these things happen at night. Night is hugely important to this age group because it's when everything shuts down. So all the distractions of the day are gone and you begin to ruminate. And uh, the other thing about falling asleep is when we're asleep, we have no control. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're, we're, we feel vulnerable when we're asleep because we're not in control of our own ideas, factions, etc. And many children fear that lack of control. And so they try and gain control another way. And that might be through washing their hands multiple times, it might be through uh, having pain and having their parents proximal to her or staying with her. And the anxiety there is about permanency, that if I fall asleep, will I wake up? Or if you go, will you come back? And it's about uncertainty. So the key here is not to get caught up in the symptom, which is the pain in the tummies or the sleeplessness or the wanting to sleep in the bed, but trying to nourish the sense of certainty, the sense of permanence, and the sense of containment. So what I'd be saying here is lots of reassurance about things are okay and they're going to be okay. We're not good, nothing's going to be changing for a while. We're staying things the way they are. Everyone's fine now. And I'll be here in the morning and you when you wake up and I'll be. And so it's about reassuring her about what she's anxious about, which is oftentimes the future or the uncertainty. The structure would be really important. So trying to put in place a kind of a fixed bedtime routine that is repeated and the repetition of that will allow her to have confidence in it, that it's going to be the same. When she comes into the bed at night again, and people curse me for this piece of advice, but it is about returning her to her own bed. You know, the child who comes in and says, there's a monster under my bed and we say, hop in here. What we're actually saying is there is a monster under your bed and you need to be here. And it's that doesn't empower her or enable her. It's, um, disables her own ability to cope so what you do is you go no there's no monster under your bed or you can stay in your own bed and you go back into their own bed and, and what you're saying to the child is so important i've repeated this so many times because it is so important is you've got this i believe in you and it's not you need me to get through the night it's that you are enough 
and you have enough of your skill set. And there, it's not that there's nothing to be afraid of, but whatever there is to be afraid of, you have enough to manage it. So it's really about empowering their own sense of resilience. And children who have a, a, a tendency towards anxiety usually lack a bit of self-value, self-worth and self-belief. And so the management of anxiety is not about reducing the anxiety stimulus. It's about nourishing the self-worth, self-belief and self-value. And we do that by encouraging the child that we believe in their own ability to manage. And it might seem counterproductive because the child is anxious. You want to get in and do it for them. When in actual fact, it's about saying, no, you've got this. I w- I'll sit back and I want to see you be able to do it. And even if you don't do it and you don't manage, we'll manage that. It's all okay. So it's, it's about not feeding into the anxiety or escalating it or enabling it, but actually saying, and it's really comes back to this. You've got this. And I believe yeah. that you've got this. So I would be flipping the approach over to try and do that uh, and encouraging her to kind of manage her own emotional dysregulation, which will help her in the longer term. Yeah. And also you're saying, so managing her own emotions, but also in her own space, like in her own room and, and keeping her in there and, and making sure she's safe there in her own space. Yeah. And it's a bit like Alison, but we, we were talking about it in terms of junior infants, starting junior infants. You, when you start with your daughter uh, in September, you're going to see the upset children, uh, hopefully not your child, but maybe <laughs> there'll be others. And there'll be parents who'll be hovering around and, you know, leave, sitting beside them in the classroom. And the teacher will be saying, she'll, she'll be fine, go. And the parent will be reluctant to go and say, I'll just hang on a little bit. And I always say that although that feels like the right thing to do, because you don't want to see your child that's stressed, think of the message you're sending your child when you do that which is, I don't trust these guys. Either. Yeah, it's not safe. <laughs> yeah. And so from the point of view of that, almost like the, the monster in the bed, I need you. And by saying you don't need me is actually empowering for the child rather than it being making them feel more vulnerable. And by staying, sometimes we increase the feelings of vulnerability because we're sending a message. Right. It's not the one that we intend to, and it's by accident. But it, oftentimes we have to go counterintuitive to how we feel we should be as parent, which is protect her and do and, and be. Sometimes parenting is about stepping back. Yeah, we can go cry in our corner in our room. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Great. OK, so feeding on from that, um, she has another question. She says, our older son is 12 and he sometimes likes to sleep in with the girls age seven and 10 or sometimes they all like to camp in the sitting room. I wonder about the appropriateness of this. I adore seeing them all getting on so well and their closeness on these occasions. I wonder with them getting older, is there a point I should discourage this or am I overthinking it? Possibly there's an overthinking element of it because there has, no, there has been no issue. But your son is, is 12, so he's pubertal. And so he'll be hitting teenage years in the next year. Very soon, I would imagine. Girls are getting older as well. Uh, I think from the point of view, this should be something that just dissipates by themselves. So they find their own way of becoming less interested in that. And there's a sadness in that because the innocence of childhood is kind of something that is short lived and then they'll all want to not talk to each other anymore. And that's perfectly okay in teenage years that the, the older brother will have no time. And you want to preserve that. In terms of sleeping arrangements, camping, that sort of stuff at nighttime, my guess is that will resolve itself in that they'll make their own choices to 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 cease doing that when they feel it's it's no longer what they want to do um and that may happen naturally but uh, so again i wouldn't overthink it uh, I, I would imagine that 
these sorts of situations in this year are hard to judge because these siblings have had so much only contact with their siblings. So their outside friends and their connections and their life isn't interfering with those relationships as much as it normally would. As soon as normal service resumes, your 12 year old is going to be out with his mates. and he's going, So he's going to be less interested in doing the childish childhood things that he's doing right now. Maybe this is kind of the fact that this is still happening, maybe is a, an indication of how life has been for the last year where and that's maybe the developmental delay piece. It's not a delay, but there's just the milestones of moving on to the next thing because we're not engaged in the social milieu or the social pressure to progress. We might just arrest and not move on from it. My guess is probably if we hadn't COVID, he might have chosen to not do this last year. Do you know what I mean? So right. you have to take in all that stuff into account. But uh, uh, I wouldn't overthink it if your children are having fun and enjoying themselves and there's a, a, a playfulness and a, a kind of a, a pleasure in, in each other's company. That's something you should cherish because I don't think that's going to last forever. <laughs> right. Okay. Maybe in the next year or two. Oh, may it last. You'll, okay. you'll be lamenting the fact that they <laughs> used to go on. But um, yeah, I think this will happen naturally that they'll find their own way out of that and again just take into the context of the last year and one more from this person it says is there a tool that would help us talk to children about being safe in the event that they encounter someone sinister she's saying it's probably on our mind with the recent stories in the media so while i want to keep them safe and aware i do not want to cause them to be fearful is there a balance that we can strike Yes, there is. It's a difficult one. I mean, you want your child to be vigilant, but you don't want them to be hyper vigilant. You want your child to be safe, but you don't want them to be paranoid. And so you're trying to, I suppose, give them enough information that protects them without giving them over information that petrifies them. And I would say, you know, there's some really good kind of books around this about, you know, that nobody should touch you when you're wearing, where you wear your swimming togs, only your a doctor or your parents should be involved in that, knowing your own boundaries about private spaces, uh, personal space, etc. Again, I wonder about the COVID impact on this in terms of our awareness or comfort with social distance uh, and the longer term impact of that right but for this situation uh, for you you want children to never st- keep secrets that's that nobody anyone who's asking you to keep a secret uh, there that you don't agree to that the issue is building up your own child's self-belief self-worth and self-value again the the idea of predators are and the the perpetrators of these sinisters act they have a skill set of identifying the children who lack those things so the best way to protect your child yes of course you tell them about the 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 dangers of interaction that is sinister or that is not appropriate um but the best way to protect them is build them up so that they have their voice that they speak out that they share their opinions that they have a value on themselves and I think that's, for me, that's the best, most effective way of making your child not a, a, a vulnerable person when it comes to perpetrators of that stuff. So the child who's speaking out, who's assertive, perhaps a little bit cheeky and able to, you know, that's not a bad thing when it comes to their protection and safety. And maybe the, the kind of less self-belief child who's more vulnerable in many ways around their own value. That's the child that you need to work on and saying, you know, you deserve to be treated right. And anyone who doesn't treat you right in any way, whether it be bullying or picking on you. And I wouldn't just make it about 
uh, the, the, the worries about kind of sexual predators. I think that's one we're highly anxious of. But it is about, and, and it's about nobody can treat you that way, whether there's somebody who knows you well or somebody who's a stranger or, you know, it's about your own value and you have value on your own body and your own space and your own right to choose. And so no secrets like yourself. Don't let anyone t- take advantage of you uh, and care about yourself. And I think those are the messages that probably are more effective in keeping your child safe than safe cross code type stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's good. Like, you know, as opposed to saying, be wary of all these people, it's, you know, put the energy into to building your child up as opposed to making them fearful of everyone, which is just a good 100%. way to do it. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to plow through. So um, again, thank you for your wonderful podcast. Well done. It says, I am a mom of three kids, uh, an eight-year-old boy and two girls age six and two and a half. Uh, my middle girl is a super kid. She's bright, engaging, entertaining, confident, chatty. Uh, she's in junior infants. And before Christmas, got a little award from her teacher for being helpful. So they're very proud of her. Thing is on top of all of this is that she's also my most difficult and challenging kid. She can be demanding uh, when she wants her own way. Uh, if she decides she doesn't want to do something, she won't do it and cause a big drama. We're nearly always on tender hooks when we're outside as to when she might kick off, uh, for instance, refuse to walk, put on her coat, uh, claim that she's hungry or cold and want to go home uh, and potentially ruins the little walk for everyone. We've tried uh, reward charts. So it looks like that's not always working. She'll tell us she's decided that she's changed her mind and doesn't want to earn a reward. We've tried short five minute timeouts, but she's happy to go on a timeout. If it means she gets out of doing what she's been asked to do. And we've tried catching her doing good things and playing well with her little sister. We will always try and compliment the three of them when they are playing well together. She's very specific about her clothes, uh, has one favorite dress she lives in, more drama if it's in the wash, doesn't like wearing layers as she thinks they are, quote, fat clothes. This worries me for several reasons, as you can imagine, and I can assure you that she doesn't get this from home. But I wonder about the influence of her idols, Elsa, Anna, Uh, any Disney princess. So looking for some advice on this, what will she be like when she's a teenager? And I laugh it off, but deep down, I'm worried that if we don't get a handle on this, the situation will be in deep water when she's a teenager. Okay. So I'm interested that that the email starts off with a middle child stating that she is the middle child and using that phrase. And I wonder if that's mum's hypothesis on why this child is acting this way. (laughs) Middle child syndrome, although not always the case, is a thing. And so the idea that you are not the oldest or not the youngest means that you have to find an identity some other way. What I'd say is remember that when you have a number of children together, They live in an attention economy. So the child who has a temperament that might need attention more. And again, I would say, rather than call it attention-seeking behavior, it's relationship-seeking behavior. They need to be reassured of their visibility. Oftentimes, in every parenting situation, we tend to give more visibility to misbehavior than good behavior. And so it is the one that uh, makes us sit up and listen. As parents, we tend to kind of dismiss the fact that people are managing and doing okay. It's our ears perk up when there's a row or a raised voice or whatever the case may be. And this child is six. So she's not very young, but she's clearly 
cottoned on to the idea that visibility is secured through misbehavior, if you want to use that, or challenging behavior, acting out. And so this idea of every being, everyone being on tender hooks in case she refused to wear a coat. Or, so she has power through her misbehavior. So she knows and she senses that everyone's on tender hooks when they're going out. So if I want to stir this up a little bit, I'm just going to have to start kicking off. My guess is if that's in a public situation, then we we all as parents bend to the rules and say, look, I'll get you the buttons. Just be quiet, you know, or don't do this. So it becomes an effective way of getting what you want. The difference is when you don't get what you want, then you tend to feel disenfranchised that you're this favoritism, that you're the only one that's not getting it. And, that, and that's where that middle child piece about they are looking for evidence to suggest why they're not valuable. So they'll hone in on that one piece of example of my older child got that, my younger sister got that, and I got nothing. And that will be way more potent in terms of their emotional reaction to it than something that they might have got 10 things more than the other siblings, but that gets soon forgotten. But if we think about visibility being around attention, there's something in this that, yes, the catching them being good is a good idea. The rewards charts, if they work, they only work when they're effectively done. And I would say that this, the reward for this child should be time. You know, in terms of if you manage this, we'll do this one-to-one -one thing and we will, you know, we, we'll I'll reward you with the thing that you're looking for, which is attention. The second thing I, I think here is that the worries about the princess and the Elsa and the Anna and all that sort of stuff, the, the princess is the star of the show. And so there is that visibility piece in why she's attracted to those characters. Just because she's into princesses as a six-year-old does not mean that she's going to still be into that or have that kind of outlook on life when she's 16. So I think prophesizing into teenage years, I wouldn't worry about that. I don't think that's, there's a lot in the next decade that can be done to influence your child's value system. So, uh, but what I would say at the moment is that this is about visibility. It's about her temperament and her temperament is different. And it's one of the things we can't explain in any psychological or psychotherapeutic people would just say, that's just who they are. And sometimes the middle child will have a temperament of sensitivity and they'll have a temperament of drama. You can't change that. You can't change temperament, but you can work with it. So what I'd be saying here is making lots of efforts to reinforce when she does get things to remind her to register that those things are happening because my guess is she's black and white thinking so she's dismissing all the things that she's getting and she's over investing her thoughts and emotion in the stuff that she feels she's not getting um so trying to remind her of that trying to again trying to be fair all the time won't work here it's about you know accepting that sometimes life isn't fair is more effective here than trying to keep everything equitable because as a parent you'll be driven cracked trying to do that especially as they get older but it's it's reassuring the child that the, the 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 spins and roundabouts happen so even though your older sister is getting this now when it's your turn you will get it too and that it's not about everyone getting the same at the same time it's about the availability being available to each of you whenever you need it and reassuring her of that again these are conversations that i think will happen over the next five years rather than now she's only six the other thing is you wouldn't expect a six-year-old to have emotional regulation she has not been able to manage that that's the task of childhood and adolescence and she may not have that till she's 21 so from the point of view of expecting her to have a level of regulation already is maybe ambitious and maybe you might be your the eldest boy is eight and boys tend to just and this is not a 
an excuse or it's a bit of a stereotype, but they tend to be less emotionally expressive. And so she's your eldest girl in that way. And so comparing her to her older sibling may be unfair. You're not comparing like with like here. So um, some of her emotionality is acting out, some of its visibility. But the other thing I would say, and I'll finish on this, I oftentimes think as parents, we need to be reassured of the, the difficult child in some respects. We have a, a view that we want our children to be compliant and obedient, and we expect them to be that all the time. That's not how childhood works. Child, children are supposed to be oppositional. They're supposed to be difficult. They're supposed to challenge things. And in actual fact, that's a very good thing that they have their voice. And in, in similar to the last question, when we talked about vulnerability, that child who's kind of uh, argumentative and a little bit over assertive and there's a safety in that, in that she has her voice and she can use it. And I can't tell you that the amount of children that I have treated in their teenage years who would come from the other side of the spectrum. So they're always really good, really perfectionist, never had to raise our voice to these children. They're, those are the things that oftentimes create the red flags more than this child was a little bit difficult to manage because she was outspoken or she acted out. Children are internalizers and externalizers. And this child is an externalizer. She wears her heart in her sleeve and you can see it. The internalizer has its own difficulties. So we have to be careful what you wish for in that regard. And I always would say that the difficult and challenging child, some of that is normative. Some of that is to be expected. And some of it we should be grateful for because it is a sign that they are using their voice, that they have some degree of ability to communicate their displeasure or disgruntlement and yeah they're communicating and for me that's something to be positive about as opposed to necessarily being deflated about it if that makes any sense so keep her talking keep her expressing nurture the time think of it in terms of the currency of visibility look at it as relationship seeking not attention seeking uh, and I wouldn't worry about her teenage years just yet there's plenty of time for that to, to flip and change between now and then yeah, well, uh, as a former still lovely middle child myself, <laughs> Satan spawned. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think my parents focused a lot on our differences. I think we we're all the three of us are all very close in age. So I was the middle child who definitely acted out a lot. And I think, you know, it, it was very disruptive at times, but I think my parents were keen on, you know, praising me for those differences and. But also, I like how you said, you know, that the other children who, like my sister, who would be very much internalizes everything and to be aware of that and to, to check in with her needs, because definitely the, the middle child can kind of take over sometimes. So it's important for, I think, parents to uh, manage that and say, you know, good, strong voice, but, you know, check in with the other two, make sure that they're not um, left by the wayside. there. <laughs> and, and Alison, as a middle child, I'm not one. Uh, I'm the youngest of three. But oh, I'm sorry. was there, I was very... It's precious and, precious. <laughs> and I was the only boy which was oh, amazing as well yeah. so um uh yeah I was I, I still am and <laughs> um, but as the middle child when you're not the oldest and you're not the youngest do you think there is an element of having to carve out an identity for yourself I do I used to you know in my famous as I was you know flipping my hair getting ready to stomp off you know I just be like I'm just the extra girl because, you know, there was my older sister and my younger brother, and I was just, you know, <laughs> the extra girl. The spare wheel. Spare wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was important, I think, to, to find out who I was. I was, 
my sister's younger sister and my brother's older sister, you know. And it's interesting, Alison, because there's a thing that we have to be very mindful of, which is kind of social construction. Do you know, we, as parents, you might say, she's the quiet one. She's <laughs> the lively one. She's the creative one. And in trying to recognize difference, but the power of that social construction, if you're the quiet one, yeah. how do you change? You know, it, it, that those reputations stick. And, and again, we talk about black sheep and all that. But if you are the troublesome one, mm-hmm. well, how do you have any other option but be the troublesome one? Exactly. So I think we have to be very careful around how we socially construct our children in terms of giving them a label very early on. And we like to do that. We like to say, oh, she's hilarious. She's a fun loving one. This is the real hard worker, quiet, internalizing one. And this is the sporty one. And you're kind of going, but it's very hard for me if I'm the good kid yes. to act out. It's very hard for me if I'm the, the acting out kid to be good. And I remember seeing one kid and she had gotten in trouble in first year to third year. And she was saying in fourth year, I'm going to ch- turn over a new leaf. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I've grown up this summer. And she went back to school. But every time there was something went wrong, she got blamed for it, even though she wasn't involved yeah. in it at all. And she said, I can't shake this reputation. Everyone sees me still as the troublesome one. So I might as well keep being troublesome right. because there's no benefit. It's much harder to, to change that social construction. And I just think, yeah, we need to be careful about yeah, labeling children with definitely. quality. But I think what my parents did, which was great, was that they really pushed our own identities. You know, they would never refer the older sister or the younger brother. It was never that. It was we were individual and we did get individual praise and individual things they didn't do a lot of like group all the kids get uh, a treat or something it was they tried to kind of separate it out a bit so you know we weren't we didn't have that opportunity to kind of compare with each mm. other and you know I didn't get to give out <laughs> so yeah and, and I think that we we do can sometimes get obsessed with uh fairness and mm-hmm. equality and being fair is giving you something when you need it as opposed to giving somebody somebody gave an example of you know, the, the child who cuts their knee in, in the class and gets a plaster. You don't give a plaster to every child in the class because he got one. You're right. giving him a plaster because he needs it. And if yes. you need one because you fall, we'll get you a plaster as well. And it's almost like we have to be careful of getting consumed by everyone getting the same um, because that's not how life is. Sometimes no. you'll need more than your siblings and sometimes mm-hmm. your siblings will need more than you. But it's having the safety of belief that if I need it, it will be there for me too. Exactly. Helps, I think that helps to sibling begrudgery as well. <laughs> a, a feature of, of oftentimes of growing up. But um, yeah, so I hope mom can see that this is a temperament issue. There's yeah. a visibility part to it. You know, nurturing this, her, her self-belief and self-esteem. But almost seeing that her acting out is very apt for a six-year-old her emotional dysregulation isn't refined yet nor should it be and just be reassured that when she's communicating that way she is communicating and that that's Mm -hmm. not always a bad thing so I hope that's helpful too that's good okay moving along okay so it says the reason I'm writing is I'm concerned that my daughter age nine is struggling with her third class schoolwork uh this has been a concern prior to the pandemic, but the interruption in school teaching and learning has obviously exacerbated the situation at this stage and not helped by the fact that my daughter's school has provided just two Zoom calls to date. My daughter uh, is pretty much disengaged from any schoolwork, uh, despite myself and my husband working with her uh, on daily school activities. 
We get a weekly plan of activities for each subject and we work through this with her. We never can complete all items as we both work full time at home currently and even from early lockdown. Any school task can take her daughter up to an hour to complete, putting eight words into eight sentences. Uh, she's raised concerns with the teachers over the course of the schooling, and it's just this year uh, that her current teacher reflected back on some challenges. For example, it's noted that while she can be highly engaged and participate with the topics of interest to her, at other times she loses concentration and tunes out uh, and tends to drift on. I've considered the pros and cons of repeating a school year, but know that before we can make the decision, we need to be better informed about her daughter's needs. I will really appreciate any professional evaluation on engaging in learning and guidance on to uh, help her achieve her potential. So she's also going on to say it's taking an emotional toll on me and I'm looking for support to help her. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is really difficult to judge a child's educational engagement at the moment because the nature of how the last year has been has been so disruptive that we it's almost impossible to get a baseline of whether like I think thinking about repeating school years and things like that is a little bit over the top in terms if I can say that in terms of the worry I can understand your concern but the children who are motivated to to work not, not every child is motivated to work at everything so they will work at the topics that they enjoy. They'll be interested in the, the, the subjects or the, the content areas that they're interested in, but they can be quite dismissive of the stuff that they're not. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just that they apply their energies into the things that uh, spark their interest. Now, from the point of view of she's a social child who maybe enjoys her peers and the connection and, and enjoys the kind of atmosphere of school. And in many cases, children endure schoolwork for the social piece. The social piece is the incentive. So I go to school, I get up in the morning to see my friends and I'll sit through the classes in between the breaks because I know that reward is coming. Over the last number of months, we've removed the incentive. There's no social incentive. And if this child is getting very few Zoom classes or connectivity, she's just becoming gradually more and more disconnected from her school community. And children, if they can't see it or feel it, it can very quickly not exist anymore. They're very, they, they wouldn't be great at being able to hold things in mind. So over the period of the last number of months, her connection, her emotional connection to her class, to her community, to her school, to her teachers, has just become more and more diluted with distance. And the incentive that was normally getting her to do the work has been removed. So her apathy, disinterest, and you know, taking her a long time to do the work is circumstantially understandable. There is a series of variables here that I would describe as the kind of social variables or the environmental variables that are very ex clearly explaining why she's struggling at the moment. There may not be a, a problem within her. And the issue, Alison, over the last while is people coming to you with mood difficulties or anxiety difficulties, deciphering whether this is a pandemic related problem or an internal problem that would have been there anyway. But we've got to understand that in, over the last year, the anxiety and depression and sadness that we're feeling might well be related to the way our lives are at the moment. And when we don't have access to mental fitness, we become mentally unfit. So we don't have friendships and social things and structure and busyness and meaning and purpose. We can become quite emotionally unfit. That's not to say that once 
those access to those things return that we're not going to just recover our fitness. And, and I would say in this child's case, that might well, might well be the case. But what we don't and what we haven't appreciated is the degree of loss that children have undergone over the last 12 months. Losing your friendships, losing your connection, losing your structure, losing your sport, losing <laughs> your hobbies. There is going to be an emotional response to that. Yeah, and she mentions Coleman that her uh, the grandmother did pass away suddenly. So, and it looks like the daughter they were very close. So, and was that in the last year? So it looks like it's last September. She said, "Oh dear, right, granddad." Yeah, I'm again quite close. Yeah, and again, think about the big issues here when you're thinking about loss and permanency, and someone you're close to passing away. Everything changes perspective out of that. So, doing maths after something like that has happened is like something that didn't really hold my attention beforehand is now, you know, so innocuous and insignificant from the point of view of, you know, life and continuity. And it's that kind of, you know, when we say we have a trauma or something happens, it gives us perspective. Do you know what I mean? And, and we start to value the things in our lives. The other side of perspective is we start to undervalue or see the lack of value in things in our lives and go why am I stressing over maths I'm thinking about life and children are not immune to having that alteration of perspective especially after a massive loss where things they would have normally stressed about or got involved in or engaged with they become quite apathetic afterwards because not all incidences give us a kind of an appetite to engage in life sometimes the perspective is what's the point Uh, and that can be an understandable response. It sounds like if, if grandma was so close to her and she only passed away in September, and again, I'm guessing with COVID, there probably wasn't the, the opportunity to observe the normal ceremonial rituals of goodbyes and everything else. There's lots of things going on for this child, uh, of which school has become a symptom of that. I would urge, and I hope that this is a child who's returning to school very soon. I think give her back into her structure, her friendship groups, her purpose, her meaning. Hopefully in the next number of weeks and months, her sports and things will start to come back. And I think that will create a natural return to life. But understandably, her, her engagement with life at the moment is, has been altered by a perspective shift. And life isn't whetting her appetite. The idea of, of it not being that exhilarating to get up and do a online set of you know seesaw instructions yeah but like like what you're saying i think it was good to point out like the incentives are gone for these children you know like you're saying the the be to to go out and play uh, after after a math class or to to have uh, the sports games or things you know the incentives are gone from the learning which is which is a really good point i hadn't thought of that you know but i i would have been one of those students who would have the only reason i went to school was to see my friends and that went right up to sixth year it was never I was never incentivized by academia Mm -hmm. I I used to I was that kid looking at the clock going nearly break time nearly break time and then it's like the kid who had their arm in the sleeve of their coat waiting (laughs) for the bell to go so that I could get out and play I never refused to go to school and I did not like going to school because the benefits outweighed the cost but if you you were told in the morning the reason you go to work Obviously, you love your job, but money and being paid for it is important. <laughs> so if somebody said, look, we're going to take away the payment. Yeah, uh, that's the incentive yeah. gone. But just keep working uh, <laughs> and do it for the greater good. My guess is that your engagement with work over time would decrease. diminish. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so from the point of view, of, we have to understand the homeschooling impact of all of this yeah. for children. Do you know yeah, that was, that was key. I hadn't thought about that.
So I'm going to move on to some Twitter and Facebook questions for you. So it says, my uh, six-year girl is nervous about her mock orals. Any tips on how to help her? Yeah, I think my, my days in sports psychology always come into this and we're trying to prepare for something like um, an oral or mock or something. What I'd say to you is trust your process. You know, you have a process of however it is you've learned the material. And I always think of somebody who's like, first and foremost, the, the bar of expectation this year for Leaving Cert students has shifted across the board, right? So there's, a, there's an expression in golf called, I think it's called standard scratch or something. So if you're playing today and the sun is shining, everyone's going to score really well. But tomorrow when we go out playing golf, it could be lashing rain and the wind is howling and the whole, everyone's scores are going to be worse, right? So given the preparation difficulties, everyone's scores are going to be worse, you know, from the point of view of how we, we think about this. So what I'm saying to you is, be aware that this is a collective. This is, everyone is struggling. The preparation for six years between the disruptions to last year and this year is appalling. And so you're not going to be able to give your best performance. But the best way that you give your best performance is going through your process. And I remember speaking to someone who was a kicker in a, a rugby at number 10, and they would say, I just go through the same thing every time. I go through the same thing. Every, whether it's lashing rain, howling, or sunny, I just have to trust. And if I do my process right, the results will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. so I'm not thinking about whether I get the kick or not. I'm thinking about what can I execute my process. And for every Leaving Cert student, I, I say this every year, trust your process. You know, the, you, you, all you can do is your best and how you know to do it. The outcome will look after itself. And from right. the point of view, of, if we're obsessing about points as opposed to obsessing about doing the oral, uh, we'll lose focus. So back to your process, trust your process and go through it. And that would be, the best piece of advice I'd give for this girl for her. Or yeah, tomorrow. that's the process. Okay. 15 year old has become isolated since schools closed. How can I help? Huge problem happening. I get so many calls about this again, trying to be creative around connection for teenagers has been difficult. I mean, I think there's a, a there's a general consensus of a drop off in the FaceTiming and the, the, the kind of meeting up and things. And most are saying it's because they're losing, a, they have no social currency. They have nothing to talk about. You know, I phone my mother most days and I say, any news? And she says to me, where would I get news? And then that's the conversation. And it tends to be a little bit of work then afterwards trying to think of things that might be relevant. Teenagers struggling with that at the moment. There is no currency for chat. Right. Uh, and so the interaction stuff is, is a real challenge. And many of them are explaining, feeling much more distant from their peer group, kind of, falling back not uh, and, and that's understandable that is the this is the the fallout of a pandemic is that there aren't nights out or sports or gas parties or uh, events or gossip to talk about and so in the absence of conversation currency the social act becomes something that has to be we have to put much more thought into it much more anxiety in it and okay. much more uh, effort into trying to execute it than before. I think we have to accept that that's really difficult and it's really difficult for everybody. And the, the sense of isolation and disconnection from our peers and the fact that, that making conversation is a lot more work than it used to be is something we all experience. But I would be hopeful that once life replays again and the pause button is stopped, that all this stuff will come back. And once it comes back, we'll have the stuff to talk about. It, they will resume. We have to understand right. that the experiences that we're having of apathy and indifference are very much related to life at the moment. They're external, they're variables 
are this is the pandemic and this is the, the impact of lockdowns, etc. Once we resume those things, I think 90% of us will be able to resume the skill set that we had before. And so I'd be hopeful that uh, supporting your 15 year old is just about saying we'll get through this. You know, this is this is difficult right now, but once life returns the appetite and the engagement will return as well and, and they trying all will. to encourage yeah. yeah yeah of course and ret- yeah. encouraging them to keep as much contact as possible even though it okay. might feel like a bit of a chore to just keep your foot in the door with your friendships will be helpful just to keep the connection alive even if it's just a text or a, you know something that's engaging just temporarily making sure that you're keeping those options open to you for when life returns yeah, because they're all isolating. So everyone's isolated. So it's they're all in this boat together. So it's important. Yeah, I like that to just send a little text and yeah, keep tabs yeah. on everyone. Keep the lines of communication. Yeah. Open. Okay. So we have uh, a six-year-old is very anxious on return to school. Teacher seems very anxious about catching COVID and is and it's transmitting to the whole class. Is there anything I can do? Unfortunately not. I mean, I think from the point of view of the, the issue here is that the adults in the room set the tone for anxiety. So we have to, as parents, even though we are anxious about things and maybe anxious about returning to school, we have to manage that anxiety and not, it, it, where COVID-19 is contagious, anxiety is twice as contagious. It's a much more contagion variant. And so we expect and want the teachers who are in the adults in the room to be able to manage the situation. If that is something that's obvious, I mean, I may, you may want to speak with the teacher or speak to the principal and see if there's some more support that that teacher can get to try and manage her own anxiety. You don't know, she might have somebody vulnerable at home. There might be very good reasons for her anxieties to be there. But for the 20 to 30 children in the class who are in receipt of that transmission of anxiety, that's not good either. So there's a limit. You can't go in and run the class for them. You know, there's a limit to what we can do. But certainly I would try and see if you could raise it as a way of how can I support the teacher here rather than saying, she's an anxious wreck and she's destroying our children, kind of saying, how can we put supports in here to help this teacher to feel less anxious because clearly the children are picking up on it. Excellent, okay. Uh, And finally, my son is missing his opportunity to play Leinster School Senior Cup. He is really down about it and affecting his ability to prepare for his leaving cert. Is that normal? You're going to have to explain what that is. I'm, I don't know what sport that is. <laughs> the Leinster School Senior Cup is a, a rugby competition, there you go. Um, but it's a hugely important one. In terms of, I, I've played this, and so it's uh, the closest thing to professional sport you're going to get. And this would be something that this boy has probably been looking forward to all his life. You know, okay. playing Senior Cup is huge. And, and uh, again, I'm saying this as someone who's played it myself. And you're, it is, it's, it's the thing that you think about and dream about, and it's the, your closest moment. So oh. that being cancelled this year is huge, is massive. I think we have disregarded young people's worries by saying, there's people dying in ICUs and everything else. Right. Get over yourself. But that's huge. And I, I just feel for that, lad. I think if I, uh, as someone who missed Senior Cup myself with an injury, you know, I, I, I can absolutely feel how difficult that must be. But these are things that we have to overcome the adversity. But I, I would just, yes, I think it's normal to be devastated about it. I think I would be the same. Uh, it's understandable that it would distract from his leaving start preparation because he's really upset. I wouldn't be dismissing it and saying, oh, for God's sake, it's only a rugby match. Uh, I would really try and acknowledge the distress, sit with it, 
you can't fix it. None of us can fix some of the stuff that's happening in, uh, but that's loss. That's bereavement. That's grief. And so it, it's sitting with that young person to, uh, to just be with them in the lousiness, I think. And uh, it will pass and maybe hopefully he'll get, he'll go on and play under 19s or 21s and get another chance to, to do something like that. But I hadn't thought about that cancellation of that this year. And uh, to all the senior and junior cup <laughs> players out there and listeners, that's, I really feel for you guys because uh, that was one experience that I did have in junior cup and I remember it and I missed it in senior cup and I really felt it. But uh, And how did you get be... through that with your, you said you had an injury. So how did you Yeah, I dislocated my shoulder. Um, I, I dislocated my shoulder in the January so I couldn't play. I managed it by kind of getting upset for a month and really (laughs) getting angry and furious and not really wanting to watch rugby for a while. But what came coming the time of the match, I just got behind the team and just said, like, you know, I'm not going to spoil it for you guys. I always remember Brian O'Driscoll when he got dropped from the Lions. He said he had to suck it up and say, you know, I, I, the, the, the greater team here is what my moping around is not going to help anyone. So I have to kind of get a grip to that. It took me about two months to come around to that idea. Brian did it in about two hours, but from the point of view, yeah, but I, I, I still, I mean, I, I would still say, you know, it's a loss, you know, I still feel it. Um, I feel it uh, now. Jeez. Jesus. Yeah. It's kind of there. scratching at something here, but, um, but I, I do, I do think for, for young people who, you know, it's something like that. It's like the Debs, you know, it's look, you're looking forward to it for years. It's not just a night out that you miss. It's a, it's your, you know, I don't know if you have a prom or something. Oh like yeah. It. So it's a, it, it's a big yeah. deal. And I just think we need to appreciate that for, for young people, you know? Right. Uh, so that's all our questions. That's all the questions we have. Alison, thank you so, so much for, we got a lot in there. That was brilliant. Um, Thank you so much for joining me on the listeners questions episode today. Uh, I really enjoyed chatting to you. Uh, That flew, that time went really quickly. Um, Your uh, questions have been fantastically asked and I thank you for that. And and good luck with your school returns and your school choices. And I know where uh, you are. I can knock on your door. (laughs) There you are. You have, you know where I am now. on call but uh no i'd just like to say just thank you very much it's been a fantastic chat to you and to anyone else who has any questions coming uh you need to get them into us you can get to to asking for a parent at gmail.com or you can get us on the twitter instagram and facebook pages and also we have some very special episodes coming up where we're looking at the voice of young people i think we've heard a lot about how parents, teachers, union officials, politicians, public health people have felt over the last year. But we felt coming up to the 12-month anniversary of lockdown, one, we would ask young people, children from primary school, secondary school, and young adults what their experience of lockdown has been. So we're going to treat you to a very special episode in the near future, which will look at their hearing the young people's voices. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. And uh, yeah, so Alison, thank you so much for your time today thank Thank you you all for listening um until next time take care stay safe and bye for now i hope you enjoyed that chat there between myself and alison we got through an awful lot of topics there this week which is probably 
an indication of how busy and what the challenges are in the parenting landscape at the moment. There's a lot going on between exams and returns to school. And although these, although these things are really hopeful and popular and we're things that we want, there's also a bit of trepidation and apprehension involved. So I hope you find this episode this week helpful. We've got some more great episodes coming up. We have a wonderful episode coming up to mark the year of lockdown and our anniversary from the arrival of COVID-19 on our shores on the 12th of March last year, we decided that we we're going to have a chat with some young people about their experiences. So we're going to talk to children of primary school age, uh, teenagers and young adults about their experience of being parented through a pandemic. So that's going to be a fantastic episode. And I really encourage you to have a listen to that. There's some really useful insights in it and it's a it was a pleasure to do. And uh, my many thanks to all the young people and contributors to that episode. So stay tuned for that it's going to be fantastic but uh, as we return to school as we return to some degree of normality as we enjoy the festivities of St. Patrick's Day yesterday I hope it all had a virtually safe day but we'll be back next week with some more information some more insights and some more entertaining discussions but until then take care stay safe and bye for now <laughs>